the emotional journey is overwhelming. You know, hormones and injections and doctor visits. It took me a long time uh, to kind of appreciate uh, the beautiful, healthy, adorable child that I had. Genetics isn't always black and white, and the emotions and decisions surrounding genetic testing can be even more complex. Welcome to Patient Stories with Gray Genetics. I'm Eleanor Griffith, a certified genetic counselor and the founder of Gray Genetics, a telehealth genetic counseling and consulting service. It seems like there are constantly headlines in the news about genetics, but few news stories focus on the patient experience. At Gray Genetics, we are collecting patient stories, your stories. Every other Tuesday, we share an interview with a patient or a genetic counselor. Your son has the full mutation. You know, there are things that happen in your life that are put there for a reason. And God sometimes puts things in your path that challenge you, but maybe you're put there because it's the right thing for you to do. Missy Zalecki is the mother of an 18-year-old son with Fragile X syndrome. For a long time, she worked as a volunteer for the National Fragile X Foundation. Just last fall, she started to work for the National Fragile X Foundation full-time as the Director of Community Engagement. She is also a nurse, has done a lot of work in the past as a clinical educator, and is passionate about evidence-based medicine and recommendations. Missy, so your oldest son, Matt, has Fragile X Syndrome, which is a genetic condition that I think most people have probably never heard of. How do you explain Fragile X Syndrome to people? Well, commonly when I say Fragile X, you get this kind of look from people and they say, Fragile what? Um, You know, because... It's just not something they've heard of. Um, It is a family of genetic conditions that can affect individuals uh, in a variety of ways. My son has Fragile X syndrome, um, and that is a genetic mutation uh, that I passed on to him. I have the pre-mutation, and then there's a couple of other disorders that can cause, uh, that pre-mutation carriers like myself are at risk for. And one of those is called FAXTAS, and it's Fragile X-associated tremor ataxia syndrome. It's kind of a cross between uh, Parkinson's and dementia. It's a neurodegenerative disorder that happens more commonly in male carriers than female, and usually happens um, after the age of 50. The other one is Fragile X-associated primary ovarian insufficiency called FAXPOI. And that is uh, a disorder that is, uh, can cause infertility, uh, early menopause, and um, you know, clearly is gonna affect the female mutation carriers. Mm-hmm. So, and I think Fragile X is more complicated than some other genetic conditions that we talk about, because I feel like often people have some familiarity with something like an autosomal dominant condition or autosomal recessive, like cystic fibrosis or sickle cell. But Fragile X is really unique because it's inherited through the X chromosomes, right? Right. Right. And it's very interesting. I have uh, a seventh grader who's been doing genetics and asking questions about, well, is Fragile X dominant? Is it recessive? And I said, no, it's in a different category. It's an X thing. I said, so. You know, so then trying to explain to him and go through the inheritance pattern of how fragile X can happen, um, you know, and then explaining to him that, you know, I think one of the really 
unique things about Fragile X is that my son, who has the full mutation, should he have children, that his sons would be unaffected because he would only give them his Y. But if he had daughters, it cannot pass on in sperm in the full mutation state. It would regress back to a pre-mutation like what I have. Yes. And my my seventh grader just looked at me and said, it's too much. <laughs> <laughs> well, also, I mean, like you, you mentioned, uh, like early in your explanation, like the idea of a pre-mutation, right. which is also something that's that's unique to, to certain uh, trinucleotide repeat disorders. So it's like the type of mutation or change, you know, really it being a question of like an expansion right. and number of repeats. So it is it is complicated. I think if you're if you're a seventh grader, I, I worry about multiple choice tests. So if there's a multiple choice <laughs> question that asks, I think it's I think they want to hear X-link dominant. Right. <laughs> but I think those those terms have kind of fallen out of favor, which I like because they're they're just not very helpful ways to think about things. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That that kind of um, blew so- his his mind. Yeah. <laughs> and is that, um, I know, so your oldest son, Matt, is 18 and you have two younger children. I do. So you're seventh. Okay. So um, what ages are your other children? So Matt is 18. And then my daughter, Paige, is 16 and typically developing. She does not have the premutation or full mutation. And then my youngest son, Jack, will be 13 here shortly. And he also uh, is completely unaffected. We had gone through pre-implantation genetic diagnosis uh, to avoid having passed that on. Okay. Meaning that you did IVF with genetic testing to test the embryos to to make sure that your two children after Matt would not have the same condition. Correct. So you were mentioning before we started the interview, and I was surprised to hear your story with Fragile X is quite different from most people's because you actually knew that you were a carrier of Fragile X before you had any children. How did you, in the first instance, how did you learn that you were a carrier for Fragile X? I had a family member who received a diagnosis, and in their counseling that they received, they, you know, talked with her about family members that were at risk and they informed me and let me know. And so I was uh, getting married and felt that it was only the right thing to do because if I was a carrier, I was not intending to have children. So I went ahead and, you know, got tested just so that I would have that knowledge Um, and then found out that I, in fact, I did have the pre-mutation. So uh, the, how they diagnose that is based on that trinucleotide repeat that you talk about. So uh, repeats between 55 and 200 are considered that pre-mutation state where you are at risk for that expansion uh, for future generations. My repeat came back at 87. Um, and you know, I, I am not a genetic expert, but in my time of research and, and knowledge of trying to learn more about Fragile X, it had seen things I had read so that it had been uh, increasing in generations, typically five to 10 repeats a generation. So for my family, it had been unknowingly um, in our family for a while. And in trying to trace back and look back, you know, we, we can pretty easily, you know, trace it back in my family. 
to seeing who, who that does. And we can identify it at least in two generations behind me uh, that, we, that we know that there were uh, likely some, some Fragile X-related uh, disorders. Okay. Yeah. And the higher, the higher the number of repeats, the more likely it is that um, it could expand to a full mutation, right? So, or, well, um, you know, I just attended um, some education recently, and it was very interesting. They were talking about this is this is more updated. I don't know that there's going to be published evidence base. But what they're finding is that actually, it's kind of a, um, a curve. So I'm really kind of in that sweet spot of oh, no. <laughs> where uh, your risk is higher for expansion. So they're saying that if you're higher end, um, you know, closer to the 200 may not be as great of risk. And, and they were talking about that as, as passing it on as well as risk for some of the associated disorders. Um, one of the other recent findings in the last few years is that there was another testing where they were able to look at another marker within that, and it was, uh, I think it was like your AGG. So there was another marker that they were able to look. So if there was a, a break within your CGG repeat, um, it was a helpful predictor uh-huh. of risk of expansion. And that was not something back when we were doing this, that that was, um, that they were doing. So it does help give additional information for people for that planning. If, you know, if you are a premutation and you have, you know, these, these breaks of the AGG within the CGG, it's going to give you a better understanding of your risk. So for me, I know that our physician had looked at mine just out of curiosity because that's what she does. She looked at it and she said, oh, you had no interruption. Your your risk of expansion was if they got your um if they got your, you know, fragile X, they were likely gonna expand to be a full mutation. Um, but if you have that break of the AGG within there, and that, that's like I said, that's a test that's uh I don't think it's available, but you know, it's still very in it. I would say in its infancy that of using that, but um, it is another level of testing. If someone is considering going through, you know, their reproductive options. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Usually I think of, you know, fragile X being related to exactly like a CGG repeats that are, that is unbroken, but it's for everything genetic. We know that there's modifying genetic factors, even if we don't understand them, right. <laughs> um, you know, because there's such a, such a broad range of how, how things actually end up being expressed. Um, so you had, um, when mm. you decided to have Fragile X testing done and learn that you did carry this premutation, um, did you see a genetic counselor or how is, how did you actually get that testing done? And did your husband or your fiance, did he go with you or like, how did he feel about all of this? Well, <laughs> uh, I worked as a nurse, uh, at the time and one of the, uh, professional connections that I had, um, was willing to, to assist with, you know, getting the testing done. So again, my path was not very traditional. 
um, you know, my, my family history of finding out was more traditional, seeing a developmental pediatrician, you know, following up with, you know, genetic counseling and getting that, that testing and doing that process. Uh, my path was a little bit different. So um, I'm, I'm kind of a person, though, that I uh, will go out, seek that information, find my answers, um, and, and find the people that I need to get that answer from. So for me, in finding that information, um, it was, you know, probably went back to, to my family member that had told me and just said, you know, I'm a carrier, that sort of thing. And at the time told my, my fiance at the time and said, well, you know, we're not, we're not going to have kids. So if you don't want to marry me, here's your, here's your chance because I'm, I would not risk this. Did mm-hmm. not, I mean, clearly at the time did not know there was a, you know, IVF with genetic testing that that was you know it was even when we did that in 2000 I mean that was a research protocol when we were doing that so you know that was not even on my radar at that time right so when you I mean knowing that you were a pre-mutation carrier at that time meant that if you had a son there'd be a 50 percent chance that he would have fragile x right and if you had a daughter probably not but possible that that a daughter might have features um, or have a more mild diagnosis of fragile X, right? Right. So I knew I knew the risk was was there. It was not something that um, at the you know at that time that I felt that I could I was comfortable risking. Mm-hmm. How did your fiance respond to you? He was amazing. Um, We've been married for almost 21 years, so clearly that was not a deterrent. Um, (laughs) So, yeah, I mean, it was he he was nothing but supportive and, you know, just said, I'm not marrying you for children. I'm marrying you for you. Um, So, you know, obviously I I I found a good guy. So, um, you know, and then you kind of put our path forward and we we did do the process of uh, IVF with PGD, uh, for my son and through. How, how did you just, how did you even learn that that was a possibility since initially you'd not thought that it would be a possibility? So I was seeing a women's health provider and, you know, I was married and she was asking, we were talking about, you know, children and things like that. And I said, well, you know, pre-mutation projects. I said, I don't, I don't, think there's anything I can do. I said, I, I would love to have children. I said, but I just am very, very conflicted. I don't think that that's something that I could, that I could just knowingly take a risk. Now there's, this is a personal decision. This is not, I, you know, I'm not making any statements of what's right for somebody else. I can only talk about what was right for me. Um, and at the time, I lived in the Chicago area, and she told me there was another hospital in the area that she thought was doing some work that could help us um, avoid passing that on. Uh, with my, you know, nursing background and, you know, hearing that there was, you know, a potential, 
I needed to get more information. So I immediately called <laughs> that place uh, to get more information and did, you know, start talking with their, they had a genetic counselor that I did speak with. Uh, started talking with their genetic counselor. She explained uh, some information, you know, had a few more conversations with her. She sent me some literature, uh, read that, talked with my husband, uh, you know, and just said, I think this is a possibility. And, you know, but then not only there was there was a lot in that decision. This was not something that you could say, OK, sounds great. Let's go ahead and do this. I mean, there's financial aspects. There's emotional aspects. I mean, uh, religiously, I w brought up that doing these sort of things was so not within my faith. Uh, so that was a big struggle for me. And, you know, really had to think if this was something that we could undertake, because it is, it's a, it's a job in itself to go through that process. Uh, the emotional journey is overwhelming, uh, financially, emotionally. I mean, having a job that could support all the testing that you have to do along the path. I mean, there was, there was a lot to it. Um, yeah. And when you say like re religiously that, you know, you were brought up that what I, you said like this sort of thing, like right. what sort of thing specifically, was it the IVF or the PGD or what aspect? And were the, was there anything that, that, you know, once you learned more about it, it was actually a little bit different than, than your initial thoughts were going into it. So I born and raised Catholic and, you know, there's, there's a lot of that, that, you know, just any sort of, you know, children are gifts from God. Um, doing anything with that, um, for me was not something that I could have, um, it was a struggle. I was born and raised that, you know, um, you, you kind of take what comes right, and right, be grateful. Right, mm -hmm. right. That you were, you were chosen for that. Um, you may not always understand that choice, but you were chosen for that. So the concept of me undergoing a process that then I would choose which um, embryos would potentially be, you know, utilized um, was a real struggle for me uh, because it was something that I did not ever think would be a choice that I would make. Um, and I, you know, spoke with, you know, friends and I spoke with a lot of, you know, people that were close to me that I knew could understand and would give me opinions without judgment because, you know, I was really struggling. And my husband the whole time said, you know, whatever, whatever you decide, I, I support. He's like, I know that this is a, a difficult decision for you. So, you know, I was not feeling anything from him per se that I had to do this or didn't have to do this. Um, but I remember talking with a very close friend um, who had a, a young child, uh, less than a year, and she said, I would do anything to have him again. She said, so, you know, she, she looks at me and she said, you know, there are things that happen in your life that are put there for a reason. And she said, you know, I, I know that this is a big thing for you faithfully, but God sometimes puts things in your path that challenge you, but maybe you're put there because it's the right thing for you to do. 
Uh, I did. Was this was this a friend who had a child um, with a genetic condition no, or a, I, a problem, or she just she just had a newborn? She had a newborn, so he's typically yeah. developing. But you know, just that whole step into motherhood and how she knew that that was important to me, but also understood the uh, the other challenges that I was you know trying to to address. Um, and then my, uh, where I was working at the time, we had, um, a chaplain who was, uh, a deacon in the Catholic church and, and, you know, he was just so wonderful. And I just, you know, I, I spoke with him and I said, you know, these, these are the struggles that I'm having. And I said, I worry that, you know, will they want to baptize my child? Will they, I mean, these are just, these were things that I was thinking of at the time. Was it the, I, I you know. The, the consequence of my decision, what's the long-term effect of that? And he said, a child is a gift from God, no matter how that comes. And he said, you know, things change and evolve. And, you know, he said, you need to be comfortable in that decision. But he said, you, you're not, you're very mindful in this. And so, you know, he just gave me some encouragement and said that he supported whatever, whatever Ever decision that I chose to make. Um, and, you know, my husband and I talked and, and it was just, it just seemed to us that this was the right path for us to take. Right. We are. And we already have the spoiler yeah. because. Little did we know. <laughs> we know that. Right. right. So, so what, what happened next? So we went through the process, you know, we were, we met with them, you know, signed the page and pages and pages and pages of you know, agreements. Um, and then, you know, it is a long path of, you know, hormones and injections and procedures and things. And so we finally got to where they did the retrieval and I had, uh, it was very fortunate. Um, you know, the fats poi component where you have low egg quality, low egg number, um, because I also had polycystic ovarian disease. Uh, I made lots of eggs. So I had eight. How, and how old were you at that time? I was 26, 27, 27. Um, so I had lots of eggs. And so we had 18 that they retrieved. Um, and they called us the next day and they said that 12 had fertilized. So that was great. And then uh, they would call us the you know, next day with the testing results. Um, so they called us the next day because we were planning on doing the transfer then at day three after the retrieval. And they called me and they said, we've got two embryos that are not affected with Fragile X. And I'm sure anyone who's dealt with someone who's pregnant or hormonal um, can understand. That was actually devastating to me. Um, and my husband kind of did a little real. It's a big, that's a big drop right. in the, from the number that had been fertilized, right? Right. right. And then and he did a little reality check. He's like, we could have none, you know, and just was very, very kind of matter of fact. And, and he was right. He, he was right. But I thought, you know, that was a lot that we just went through financially, emotionally, physically, you know, and to only have two. Oh my gosh. Right. So we got down to the day of transfer and 
the physician comes in and he says, well, you have three. And I said, well, how do I have three when yesterday they called and said that we had two? So he told us at the time that we had, uh, they review the embryos for growth. And there was one of them that really was not showing great growth yesterday, but today when they looked at it, had really taken off. So he was concerned that it would not survive if we wanted to freeze it and thaw, but said, um, you know, he thinks it was good for transfer. So, and had they done testing yes, of that embryo? Right. Okay. But that was, you know, he had said that, you know, that this was one that would have been fine to transfer, but just wasn't growing. So they didn't, yesterday, the, they didn't mark that as available. So for me, that, that satisfied my, you know, a thousand questions that I had. <laughs> so we transferred the three embryos and um, I achieved a pregnancy. And, you know, I was very fortunate because they had given us a very low uh, success rate that they anticipated being a fragile X carrier. So the fact that we did one cycle, I got pregnant um, and it was only, only one baby. So I wasn't having, you know, the risk of multiples. Um, you know, I was elated. I, I was, you know, so happy. Um, because of my strong faith, uh, I did not want to do any of the testing uh, during pregnancy, just because if I found out that there was something awry, I would not have done anything about it. I, I, I for me, that was, that was, what I was comfortable with. Uh, so we tested cord blood at birth and um, just to get that negative diagnosis for that peace of mind. And my uh, OB called me when he was 12 days old and said, we've got a problem. And I said, oh, no, 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 no you're wrong. <laughs> it's, it, I'm sure I had a C-section. I'm sure it's just a contamination from you know, from my, you know, from my blood. And he goes, no, 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 no. I just talked with this a physician at Rush University who also did your carrier testing. It's your son has the full mutation. Um, so as you can imagine, uh, I was a little bit kind of um, shocked. Uh, actually called that physician at, at Rush before I called my husband to talk to her directly. Um, he gave me her direct line. So... <laughs> That started our, our long-term relationship uh, off with a bang. And, um, you know, she said, no, he, he does. His testing is different. He has a full mutation, blah, blah, blah. And she's, you know, but I think for your peace of mind, probably would work with your physician to have him retested, which we did. And obviously it confirmed it as well. Um, but when we found out later, what had happened is that third embryo uh, had been marked the day before it wasn't a growth issue. It was that it had a questionable diagnosis. They were unsure if it had, in fact, if it possessed fragile X or not. So the other physician was more cautious and marked it as not um, viable. So the one that we worked with the day of our transfer um, was a little more risky, and we did not see the report until after he was born that showed that it had. Uh, you know, like a 92% uh, likelihood of being un, uh, um, unaffected, but was not clear in a way uh, unaffected like the other two were. 
So sounds like a pretty sloppy lab error, even though I guess this was this was being done under a research protocol right, at the time. Right. Were you angry huh. at this point or were you just too overwhelmed to to feel um, anger? At incredibly <laughs> angry. Um, just devastated. Um, you know, I, I struggled so much with what we had done. Um, struggled a lot with what we had done. and you know, was so excited that we had this baby and, you know, just thought that we had done the right thing. So, you know, to find out when he was three weeks old that this was an error, a human error, um, was was devastating. Uh, you know, it, it I took it harder because, you know, I was the one, you know, taking the lead and explaining to my husband and, and, and saying, yes, we can do this. And uh, you know, I had the medical background. I, I probably had a depth of knowledge that, you know, is a little different. So uh, it was it was a big struggle for me. Um, you know, I, I just it was very I was very angry and took me a long time uh, to kind of appreciate uh, the beautiful healthy, adorable child that I had. Um, you know, I had, I have friends that had struggled with infertility and have never been successful. Um, so, you know, kind of having that reality check, you know, I could have a child that has a genetic diagnosis, but he's healthy and he's, he's happy and he has these gorgeous blue eyes and this bald head. And, um, would I rather have him or have nothing I will take him every day, every single day. I will, t- I will choose him. How, how long did it take you to kind of have that, I think, like huge shift in, in feeling? I would probably say, I want to say he was probably about six months before I kind of said, I need to just let this go because that anger consumes you. And, um, you know, this was a choice I made. I knew there was, I mean, I still knew there was risk. So, you know, angry at him, but also should I be angry at me? You know, was it a risk that I shouldn't have encouraged us to take? I don't, I mean, you know, there, there was a lot of that. And, and, you know, that, that guilt comes back over the years, but, you know, in all honesty, the silver lining, um, this diagnosis has put, people and opportunities into our lives that would not be here without that diagnosis. It has pushed me to do things in my life outside of my comfort zone that would have never been in my realm. So if you ask me today, do I regret that? Absolutely not. Do I, do I often wish things weren't difficult sometimes and that the challenges that he faces weren't there? Yes, absolutely. I wish that, you know, he could you know, be like everybody else, you know, you know, unique in his own way, but not have the struggles. Uh, but do I regret it? Not at all. We'll be back with patient stories in just a minute. If you would like to speak with a genetic counselor, but don't know where to start, Great Genetics is here to help. We know that finding a genetic counselor can be challenging. Here at Gray Genetics, we offer genetic counseling in a variety of specialty areas. 
Whether you're interested in cancer, family planning, or cardiovascular genetics, you can connect with a certified genetic counselor who will evaluate your family history and even coordinate testing if necessary, all over the phone or secure video conferencing. Check out this service and more on graygenetics.com. That's G-R-E-Y genetics.com. When you learned that you your son did actually have Fragile X, um, already knowing quite a bit about the condition, what did you think that would mean that it would be like for him as an infant and a child and growing up? And has it been similar or different from what, from what you expected in terms of his development and what he can and can't do? Well, you know, we did have the fortunate uh, Fragile X clinic, second largest in the world in, you know, in Chicago. So we were able to see a Fragile X specialist, which has uh, certainly evolved a lot over the 18 years where there's been many more providers and we now have uh, multiple clinics throughout the United States. So we've been very fortunate that we have had an expert in our field uh, access to her since the beginning. So. You know, at the time, she told us that there it's a spectrum disorder and that, you know, there's varying degrees and it, his level of repeat that he had did not was not a predictor of how that would manifest in him. So uh, for us, you know, you, you read, you know, what do we tell people? Don't go to Google, right? Uh, you read on the Internet all the things. And of course. That's what we all do. And you say, oh, he doesn't have that or he doesn't have that. You know, so you think, oh, well, maybe it's just not not he's not going to be as effective. Um, I think we've always kind of taken this uh, as. Educating ourselves, doing what we can to give him the supports that he needs. And, you know, we we've fought hard for him in the school setting. We've, you know, making sure that he has opportunities. So, you know, we started early intervention very early on for him, but he did not miss milestones, uh, you know, the standard milestones until he was that language growth that should happen between kind of 18 months to 24 months. He, he you know, sat up, he crawled, he, he walked within parameters. He was doing what he was supposed to do. So we'd started early intervention, but there weren't really anything they could do for him because there were not any delays of doing a therapy to set a goal. So, um, you know, it wasn't until we really kind of approached that two-year-old range that there was enough of a, a delay that we were able to start implementing therapies for him. Um, so, and what do, well, like what kind of delays were you noticing when he hit about that two-year-old mark? So speech delay, he certainly was not talking uh, the way a typical two-year-old was talking. Um, I didn't have the understanding at the time of a lot of the sensory component that he was, you know, his auditory processing delay, uh, you know, just the overwhelming component of managing his environment. And, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. As you become more educated and you learn more and you look back, I can see things in him previous to this that we probably should have been doing more of uh, OT kind of sensory uh, integration things. But again, you know, as a parent, and I felt a, a pretty well educated parent, um, you do the best with the information you have at the time. So do I regret that I didn't do more back then? 
do I no? I do I think it would have ultimately changed his long term trajectory? Maybe I don't know, but I don't think it would have been that big of a variant. Um, our our premise in life was that when we had this diagnosis, we were going to live the life that we intended, and sometimes it may go well, and sometimes it may not. So if we intend to travel, we're going to do our best to try and travel with him. Uh, you know, if we want to go out to dinner. We're going to go out to dinner with him. And what I learned is that just because he had a diagnosis and we had, you know, because you all have babies all at the same time with friends and things, you know, they had the same struggles we were having where their kids wouldn't tolerate and they'd have to leave the restaurant because the, the you know, baby would flip out. So I wasn't seeing that real difference um, in, you know, the kids that my son was growing up with, with our friends until really that language component um that didn't didn't really progress Mm -hmm. and what um what is his uh speech and social life now like now he still has significant uh articulation issues um you know we we continue to see uh, advances in him with language and vocabulary. Um, so, you know, it's difficult for someone to meet him and understand, and necessarily always understand what he has to say. But then once people have kind of spoken with him, they kind of learn the nuances of, of what his words are. Um, conversationally, uh, he wants to have that conversation with people and, you know, conversationally, he will talk to us, um, you know, but we're not talking, you know, typical 18 year old. Uh, it's probably more of a five to six year old uh, cognitive level conversation, still broken sentences, things like that. Um, but for us, when he's calm and in you know comfortable settings, we, he can't we can have conversational speech. But that did not really even start happening until he was probably eight or nine, that we could have some conversations. If he was meeting you or anybody else, uh, he would want to talk to you, but the anxiety that he feels would likely overwhelm him. The environment, uh, the sensory input can be overwhelming. Um, So he'll talk to you, but he will go to some of his standard uh, patterned questions. So he'll ask you, what are you doing on Saturday? Um, and then you'll say, oh, gosh, I don't know what I'm doing on Saturday. And then he won't know what else to ask. And he'll say, what are you doing on Saturday? Um, because he wants to talk to you and he wants to have that conversation. Uh, but it's really difficult for him to do that. But the desire is there. Yeah. And there's there's some, I know we were talking about this before starting the interview. There's some overlap between Fragile X and autism, right? Correct. So uh, Fragile X is the leading single gene cause, uh, genetic cause of an autism spectrum disorder. Um, The CDC is reporting that about 46% of males with a fragile X diagnosis have also been diagnosed or treated for an autism spectrum disorder. And it's uh, on the reverse of that, about the prevalence numbers are somewhere between a third to half of uh, individuals with fragile X syndrome have a dual diagnosis of autism as well. 
So, um, you know, a lot of the families that I have come to know over the years, uh, many got an autism diagnosis first. And then uh, either it was it didn't quite fit or they, you know, I had one family member that or one friend that said that they were given an atypical autism diagnosis. Um, you know, so they said, you know, it was kind of funny because the insurance was like, well, there is no atypical autism diagnosis. <laughs> uh, you know, there is no there is no code for that. Um, so, you know, for her, fortunately, they had been working with an early intervention provider who had worked with another family had a child with fragile X and then suggested to her, I think your son may have fragile X. I can't give you recommendations, but you might want to look more into this. And sure enough, he, in fact, did have fragile X syndrome. Uh, so, you know, a lot of people that the path to the fragile X diagnosis was not um, I don't want to say our path was easy, but you know, there was, it was good to know that we didn't have that struggle of trying to find what the answer was. We knew immediately what the answer was and being able to find appropriate interventions and things for him without that struggle. Right. And I know we were looking over before, um, you know, for a diagnosis of autism, of course, um, to meet the diagnostic criteria for an autism spectrum disorder. Um, you know, there's no genetic testing requirement. In most cases, we would not find anything genetic. But on the other hand, um, the clinical practice recommendations from the American Academy of Neurology and Child Neurology Society do include genetic testing, te genetic testing um, as part of a workup for children who, um, who are suspected to have an autism spectrum disorder. And Fragile X testing would actually be part of that. Right. Um, and I mean, in your interaction with families, I think often you've seen that that doesn't necessarily happen. <laughs> well, you know, I think, uh, again, you know, my, my path of this for 18 has been on for 18 years. And I think um, that has certainly evolved. But, you know, from one of the things that I think was kind of a aha light bulb moment for me was understanding that when they do that, you know, genetic panel, the microarray that is done, that fragile X testing was not part of that, that that needed to be a separately ordered test. And there's some families that we've had, I've heard stories of that their children are even older than my son, who originally had a genetic workup, and they were told that everything came back fine. But then when they learned that Fragile X was not part of that panel and then had it tested, they did find out that it was actually Fragile X. So, um, you know, I think it's just a good awareness topic that, you know, when you do a genetic workup, that Fragile X is not part of that standard panel that everybody considers. That is a, a you know, standalone that needs to be done in addition. Right. And I think like years ago, you know, a genetic workup, let me say like 25 years ago, a genetic workup might have been like just chromosome studies, like a karyotype. Right. Um, and then what's become more standard now would be also would be a microarray, which can pick up um, missing or extra pieces that would be too small to see with a karyotype, which can, you know, really yield a lot more diagnoses and help out a lot of parents. But 
when we're talking about Fragile X, um, you know, the kind of mutation we were talking about earlier, the trinucleotide repeat, um, you don't pick that up with microarray. And then even as um, next generation sequencing, so reading every letter in every single gene has become cheaper and more affordable. Um, and that's, I mean, it's kind of a quick and dirty test, right. <laughs> you know, depending depending on how targeted it is and how much kind of care goes into the testing and the analysis of the data. But that technology that's become cheaper will not pick up these types of mutations. Um, yeah. <laughs> right. It's, it's, not, it's not simple. I mean, Fragile X is very complex. Um, but, you know, the importance of, of why this is so important to be doing that is Fragile X has a very unique learning style for uh, those individuals. And when you try to fit someone, so we had struggles in school where they wanted my son in an autism kind of focused program. And I kept explaining to them that their interventions were counterintuitive to what uh, would work for him. And actually it was creating more difficulties for him um, because, you know, a lot of, a lot of uh, things are, you know, eye contact and forced eye contact and things like that. And I kept saying, do not force him to have eye contact when he's comfortable. He'll have eye contact with you. That cannot be a goal for him. Um, you know, and trying to explain to them that, you know, the fragile X learning style is, is not the same. So, you know, we're very fortunate that the National Fragile X Foundation does have what we call consensus guidelines and documents where we have topics uh, from education to uh, potty training. Um, I, I mean, it's just a, a vast array of information, but they even have an education broken down to early childhood, to elementary, to middle, to high school, uh, you know, opinions and, and resources and, and best practices on how you, you know, would teach kids um, behavioral challenges and what are appropriate interventions for someone with fragile X syndrome, uh, you know, the best practice for that. So for me, uh, having that knowledge and having those resources were what helped me fight uh, when things weren't going right. And I said, you know, this is not my opinion. This is an opinion of experts who have done this professionally. This is not just me as a mom saying we need to be doing that. So, you know, that has always been a huge resource of, you know, that the National Fragile X Foundation is able to tap into this uh, nationwide uh, pool of experts, and they come together to provide these resources for families. So, you know, if someone has an autism diagnosis, but could it be Fragile X? I mean, for me, that knowledge also of knowing that I was a carrier allowed me to have choice. So for me, making that choice to go through PGD was very important. Um, and that is, you know, information that, uh, you know, if you have a child that fragile X is the cause, that would be important for the parents if they're thinking of having future children to have that knowledge because it's an informed decision. And again, this is what was right for me. I am not saying or making judgment on anybody, but that was what I needed to know. And there's some people that honestly, I understand, I, I can respect that, that they, they are not wanting that information. And that's, that's their, that is what is right for them. And that is totally okay. Uh, for me, I needed as much information 
as I possibly could and continue to do that. Um, we're in a much different phase. My son is 18. So we're looking at a uh, different phase of life, transitions. Uh, what are we going to do as an adult? What do we do when he's no longer getting support through the schools? Um, you know, so it's, it's, it's a different thing. So we're back into that, you know, getting information seeking. And, you know, when you're, when you're having a child that you know has a delay, uh, whether it be autism, fragile X, whatever, you're, you're in that information seeking. And, you know, you do rely a lot on your providers uh, to guide you because most parents aren't genetic counselors or developmental pediatricians or, you know, neurology, you know, pediatric neurologist or whatever the specialty or, you know, pediatricians. So they rely on those providers to really promote that good guidance. So having that awareness and knowledge of the professionals that if someone does have an autism spectrum disorder diagnosis, that testing for fragile X really is imperative. Yeah. And I, I think kind of the flip side of that too is like, you know, testing for fragile X in a child with, um, you know, autism spectrum disorder or with significant developmental delay is carrier testing for women for fragile X. So the guidelines, I think ACOG guidelines currently do not recommend routine fragile X testing. It's just thought to be not quite common enough for that to be a blanket recommendation and to that it should be offered if there's a family history that's suggestive of fragile X. And then if there's in one of the newer guidelines, there's a note if a woman asks for it, um, that it can be done with informed consent, which is funny to me because you have to know that it's available to ask for it. Right. <laughs> but yeah, how do you, how do you feel about those, about those screening recommendations? Do you think that carrier testing for fragile X should be done more, more routinely? Well, you know, Fragile X in the United States is estimated to have one and a half million people with a Fragile X mutation. Uh, about 100,000 of those are estimated to uh, have Fragile X syndrome. So, you know, the current prevalence numbers are suggesting that one in every 151 women uh, possess the premutation, most unknowingly. So in my family, you know, like I said, it had probably been at least three generations before we had a generation, which would be my son's, that someone manifested uh, symptoms, if you will say, uh, enough that warranted additional testing. So we would not have known. So if you wait until somebody has a family history of fragile X, it's kind of reactionary um, instead of being proactive and potentially offering that. Um, being a female, having had three babies, um, I did notice even in that path of doing that, you know, that was not even something on the, you know, first visit when I had a baby, uh, you know, pregnant visit paperwork. The second one, um, it was discussed. And then when I kind of looked at them and then we had this discussion because it was a new physician, uh, you know, kind of was like, oh, my gosh, uh, good, you know, good thing I asked, especially since you already know about Fragile X, um, <laughs> you know, but I was already pregnant by the time I was seeing them. Uh, but then uh, what I found interesting is because I was doing a lot of uh, awareness events and fundraising events and 
educational conferences when we, we still lived in Illinois, um, I had friends who did not have children with fragile X, but would tell me that they went to their women's health provider and they were just doing their annual exam. And the paperwork did ask about family history of fragile X. And they said, you know, it was interesting that that had never been on there, but now I'm starting to see that. So I think the awareness is progressing. Um, you know, but I think waiting until you have someone with a diagnosis of fragile X, is that, too, is that too late? Now, I can't change the recommendations of big national organizations um, in doing that. And, you know, the, I'm living in a bubble with this, right? Because fragile X is very much, you know, on my mind all the time. Uh, but I think for families that don't even know that this is on their path, would they appreciate having that offered and a little bit of information when they're doing family planning? I, I would think that that would be very beneficial. And hopefully that this is not uh, something that they would be faced with. But uh, for me personally, um, knowledge is power. And I like to know the information to make the best informed decision I can with the information I have at the time. Yeah. What what would you say to someone who's listening who is either concerned about a child with a with a, who has a diagnosis of an autism spectrum disorder or is having some delays or who's just thinking about family planning maybe having children um, and now maybe you know like one other condition that they're now worried about that they never heard of before right <laughs> um, what would you want them to know well I think knowledge right so if you're concerned. You know, you're, you, there's always resources. I mean, you have so many um, physician experts out there, genetic counselor, of course. I mean, the knowledge from the genetic counselor is just mind-blowing to me. Um, so I think certainly getting multiple, getting opinions from different perspectives. So, you know, if you're able to do genetic counselor, if you already have a child that has a delay, right? And you're looking at that, um, you know, it's very common for people to want to have, you know, a second opinion and things like that. So I would certainly get the knowledge, you know, get the information, you know, to what they feel comfortable with. And like I said, there may be some people that just are more comfortable in not knowing. And that's, that is a personal decision. And that's fine. That was not a decision that was good for me. Uh, but I think, you know, certainly I talk about Fragile X pretty much everywhere I go, right? I mean, it doesn't matter. Uh, I was at a, a school event for one of my kids last night, and I we started talking about Fragile X. They asked what I did, and I explained to them that I, you know, uh, now work for the National Fragile X Foundation but I've been a longtime volunteer that I have a child affected by Fragile X and then kind of started talking about some different things uh, along with that. And, you know, to me, my, my son was giving to, was, we were chosen for him because we were meant to do good in this community. Um, I hope that I have lived up to that <laughs> and, you know, we'll continue to do that. But to me, uh, knowledge is power. And it may be that person that I talked with last night that, um, you know, may make the difference that there may be a friend of hers who's struggling to get pregnant and doesn't know why. 
And, you know, they end up, you know, saying, hey, you know, I heard that there's a, you know, this genetic disorder that can cause some problems with that. Have you, have you looked into that? Have you been tested for that? And what if that was the reason, you know, you, you don't know what your brief conversations can do. So um, I think, you know, the internet is good, uh, also can, you know, sometimes skew the information, but I think there is a lot of great information to be found. Um, I think it's a lot different than even when we had our diagnosis where social media uh, also provides a lot of immediate access um, to other connections of families and things. Um, I see a lot of people that come into some of the Fredlux groups that I'm on on Facebook who don't have a diagnosis yet, but this has just been mentioned to them and have come in there just to get additional information and seek support and things like that. Yeah. So we'll, in the show notes, we'll include the link to the National Fragile X uh, Foundation website. What what other resources would it be good for us to link to? Like that Facebook group you mentioned? That Facebook group is not uh, man or moderated by the foundation. It was just a group of parents that do that. Um, but, you know, the foundation, I mean, certainly I think, you know, it's always good to have the CDC, you know, that does a lot of those recommendations. I think having that, um, that as well. Um, but, you know, the, the foundation's website has not only where people can get to, you know, parent support groups, if they have a, if they have, you know, somebody in their area that they connect to. So, I mean, there's a wealth of knowledge on there. So not only is there, you know, educational resources, behavioral resources, uh, there's information about our clinics, um, our clinics that we have throughout the United States. There's information about our support network, which is, you know, primarily uh, parent-led. We do have some um, leaders who are not parents as well, but are very invested and involved in Fragile X. Um, I mean, it's got a lot of information that help people find whatever resources and support they need. So if they're looking for uh, where they can get tested. We have information on there, what kind of testing they should have. If they're looking to find a Fragile X provider, they can find the clinics and the clinic contact on how to get into those clinics as well. Awesome. Yeah. Seems like a great resource. Um, and it looks like the foundation is also on Facebook, Twitter, right. Instagram, LinkedIn, right. all the usual suspects. <laughs> right. Well, you know, when, when we were diagnosed, um, after I got off the phone with our doctor and I maintained total composure with that conversation. Um, I think it's my ER nurse background, you know, when you're in the midst of chaos, you keep it together. Um, and it, it had kept total composure. Now, when I hung up the phone and then called my husband, I could barely get out the words. He has it. And that was it. Um, and unfortunately, my husband worked like an hour and 15 minutes away. So he didn't, he, I couldn't talk. I mean, it was, it was, it was a challenging, very challenging time. Um, but, you know, I quickly called the National Fragile X Foundation um, because when I went to look on, you know, what was a little more limited back then, the internet, uh, that was who came up. And I called and, you know, I had someone on the other line that answered the phone and just, you know, said to me, it's going to be okay. It's, it's going to be okay. 
I promise you, it will be okay. Just so reassuring and so comforting. And I just knew then that, you know, there was somebody who understood. Um, she connected me with uh, a mom in my area that I was able to call and speak with who was, you know, further down our path. So it was, you know, such a positive experience for me. Uh, the foundation does do international conferences every other year. And so my son was diagnosed uh, in 2001. And ironically, the conference in 2002 was in Chicago. So I was able to attend that conference and just was blown away and overwhelmed by the amount of information that was there. Uh, I have been to every conference with the exception of the ones when I was having the other two kids. Uh, but I have been to every other conference since his diagnosis, um, since 2001. Can't say enough good things about the National Fragile X Foundation, it sounds like. No, I mean, you know, the, in all honesty, um, the supports, um, you know, I'm all for research. We've done a lot of research studies uh, with Matt, including medication trials, because I can't expect something to change if I'm not a part of that change. Um, I mean, that's just that's just the way I feel. Uh, so we've done a lot of, of research, intervention-based, uh, medication trial, things like that. But that's all fine and good. But there's times where I need help on how do we deal with he won't walk in the house from the garage. We need, we need uh, interventions and supports. So for me, they have always been that resource with the, what do I need today? What help can I have today? Um, they are big facilitators of research and support that. And, you know, even these, I talked about the consensus guidelines and documents that we have. I mean, those don't come from opinions that's evidence-based you know backed with expertise of in the in that so um i i know that matt would not be uh where he is today had i not had the supports of this foundation which is why i chose to be a volunteer for a long time and then when the opportunity to take a staff position came up it was perfect I, fit <laughs> yeah i just i just couldn't imagine not I just couldn't imagine not stepping into this. If you'd like to share your story, send an email to podcast at graygenetics.com. Patient Stories is an ad-free podcast and is unaffiliated with any commercial genetic testing laboratories. We would like to keep it that way. You can now donate to Patient Stories online by going to graygenetics.com slash podcast slash donate. If you don't want to make a monetary donation but still want to support the show in another way, Leaving a review on iTunes or sharing our episodes through social media also makes a big difference. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute medical advice and is also not a substitute for genetic counseling. Neither Gray Genetics nor any of its guests makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast. Evaluation of an individual's personal and family health history is a crucial part of genetic counseling and any recommendations.